think I could ask anyone a more important set of questions than the, one that I'm gonna, the ones that I'm going to ask you this morning. Questions that James provokes us to seriously ask. And to do so, I want to begin by sharing with you a story that I've shared with many of you before. It's so good, I'm gonna, sure I'll tell it again. But in 1912, in a prayer meeting in Ontario, Canada, a man in tears confessed to the church in that prayer meeting that he was John Harper's last convert. And by what he meant by that was John Harper let, Harper led him to the Lord, but he was the last one he ever led to the Lord. You see, John Harper was a preacher in England at that time, a man who boldly and lovingly shared the good news with people, and, and he had an amazingly fruitful ministry. When he would preach, people would just see Jesus in their hearts, and they would receive Jesus, and many were saved through his ministry, so much so that Moody Church in Chicago had him come on a number of occasions to come and teach on evangelism and preaching the gospel, and this is where he was headed. He had lost his wife recently, and he had a daughter, and he and his daughter got on a ship to head to America. They set board a ship in April on the Titanic, and you know what else happens. An iceberg strikes. He sends his dear daughter with his cousin and the other women and children who were put on lifeboats. And without a lifeboat, he eventually finds himself in the icy Atlantic Ocean and he dies. He enters eternity, John Harper, and goes to be with the Lord he so dearly loved and to tell others about. But you see, something happened before he died, according to this man in that Ontario church. You see, the man in the prayer meeting is... Tears recalls his near-death experience as he was plunged in that same icy waters because, you see, he was on the Titanic as well. He was clinging to debris in freezing waters. Suddenly, he said, a wave brought a man near. It was John Harper he could recognize. He, too, was holding a piece of wreckage. He called out. John Harper called out to him. Man, are you saved? No, I'm not, I replied. He shouted back, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Quoting from Acts 16.31. The wave bore Harper away, but a little later he was washed beside him again. Are you saved now? He called out. No, I answered. Then losing his hold, he said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Then losing his hold on the woods, Harper sank into eternity. And there alone in the night with two miles of water under me, this man says, I trusted Christ as my Savior. I am John Harper's last convert. Now aside from it being an astounding, a story of an astounding focus and of passion of Harper's singular-mindedness of, I want to tell us about Jesus even to the end. He wasn't thinking about his death. I want to ask you the same question he asked this man. Friend, are you saved? I can't think of any more important question to think upon. And don't take this question lightly. James doesn't. Don't ignore the question. 
but take it to heart. Don't just think, no, I remember this time. I went forward. I prayed a prayer. I have a decision slip. I was baptized. James 2.14 is concerned as he says, can that faith save you? To be saved is to be rescued from the punishment of sin, the just and right wrath of God against sin and the rebellion of us against towards him. Every last one of us is sinners according to this book. We are lawbreakers of a most holy law. We are lawbreakers of a most holy lawmaker. We owe our complete allegiance, our complete love, our complete trust and obedience, everything. And yet we reject him every day in small little ways and we put other things first. To be saved is to have our sins, that rebellion forgiven by God through the work that he provided in giving his son Jesus Christ who died having lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose again and is the perfect and the only substitute for all who would receive him by faith. To be saved is to have your sins forgiven. To be saved is to have all of this and to become his child. He becomes our father. He gives us his spirit so that inwardly we can start to do things like we never did before from the inside out. We have a new heart, a new mind, a new way, a new nature, all from him and by his grace. And we have a hope that is in heaven, and it changes everything. Are you saved? So let me ask you another question. Do you have faith? The Christian answer is clearly different than all other religions. You are never saved because or on the merit of having done good works or deeds, as though those can make up for all your bad deeds, and you can tip the scales so that God will show favor to you and save you in the end. That is not Christianity. Christianity is that God saves us by grace. Now, I know you know that. You've heard that. You sing that. Even if you don't go to church much, you've heard of amazing grace. But who does he save? I've asked already, do you have faith? What do I mean by that? Well, when I say faith, I mean do you believe? Do you trust God? Whoever believes in him, to him, to believe in him is to have faith. Let me share some of the most Heard words and quoted words in all of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Or John 5, that's John 3.16, John 5.24. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Do you see that whoever believes is saved? He has eternal life. He does not come under judgment, but passes from death to life. The apostle Paul says it this way, and he uses the word faith. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And it is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result. 
lest anyone would boast. Paul says to the Corinthians, in God's wisdom, it was pleased that through the folly of what we are preached to save those who believe. Paul said it to the Romans, you are justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So you see, faith is really important. I ask, are you saved? Do you have faith? Paul says we are justified by God through faith and not by our works. In, that, in this sense, he means that on the basis of God saving us and declaring us right, we receive it freely as a gift by trusting in him and not just by trying to do good. So, do you have faith? I'm really talking to every one of you. Member, leader in this church. I've asked myself this question over and over again this week in studying this past. James wants us the question, do you have faith? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? But I want to ask a third question, a question that James is extremely concerned about because he's not just concerned about if you say you have faith or a certain kind of faith. He says he really wants us to ask this question, what kind of faith do you have, my friend? I assume that almost all of you, maybe not everyone here in this room, but almost all of you would say something like, yes, I do have faith. I do believe And I want to ask you, what kind of faith do you have? James would want us to say, is it the kind that saves? Is it the kind that justifies? James asked the question, can that faith save us, save him? Verse 14. And what does he mean by that faith? What is he talking about? Well, read the words just before that. Verse 14 of James 2, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? That faith, he's talking about, does that faith save? That faith is that faith which has no works and what he says is useless. What good is it? Friends, what kind of faith do you have? A faith that saves or a one that is useless? to save, a faith that justifies or does nothing of the sort, just makes you feel a little self-justified and good about yourself, a faith that is both talk and walk, living it out, or just mere words, a faith that is good works or a faith with really no obedience to show for it, a faith that is alive and a faith that is dead faith. As James says, if you were to scan your eyes through this text, you see many summaries of what he's saying here. Look at verse 17. He says, so by faith, by itself, if it does not have works, it's dead. Look at verse 20 with me. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And verse 26, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You see, he's really concerned what kind of faith you have. The church has that he's writing to. Someone labeled it, he's wondering, do you have capital F faith, real faith, vibrant faith, or faith with just inverted commas, just faith? I have faith, 
James wants to warn and instruct professing believers in the church. Because this is the church he's writing to. Remember verse 1? You can stare down at verse 1. He says, he says, show no partiality. And he says, as you hold your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. You, you hold the faith. He says, now he's saying, I'm so concerned because we have churches that profess the name of Jesus Christ. And I want to show you tests. Are they real? Because if Jesus is real in your life, it absolutely changes your life. It comes in and you're not just a hearer of the word. Your religion is not worthless because you have received the implanted word. It's saving your soul. It's changing your life. And now he's going to say, now I want you to really Consider your faith. What kind is it? He wants us to examine ourselves, to take a test. Is my faith real or counterfeit? And if it's counterfeit, I might be deceiving myself. I might think that I'm a Christian and I'm really not because I've just been trusting on, on my faith or my decision or my good beliefs or the fact that I pray every once in a while. Am I really a Christian? Am I truly saved? He says, in a sense, let me introduce you to a category that you need to be aware of for the sake of your soul. There is a faith that doesn't save. In reality, it's not biblical faith. It's not saving faith. It's dead faith. It's faith without works. It's useless faith. And why is James doing this? He loves the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves the church. He loves souls. And he wants them to, to see the truth, to look in the mirror. And for those that are saved but are weak in their faith, to look to the Lord Jesus Christ and see that if their faith is real, it changes. He's concerned that when trials will come in James 1, they'll remain steadfast and mature, that they'll grow as they ask for wisdom. When they face temptations, they'll remember every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And they'll receive with meekness over and over again that implanted word that has been coming to them and be hearers and doers of the word, having been changed and brought forth by the word, by his grace. Yet James doesn't just give us summary statements in this paragraph, this extended paragraph of verses 14 through 26 that I read. He doesn't just say, here are some summary statements that you want to, I want you to take into account, that faith without action is not really faith, and it's only useless, and it's not saving. So there you go. Go about your day. He illustrates, he gives us illustrations to help us understand where we are and reveal, are we there? Is that me? As well as to say, here is the nature of the faith that I'm, gonna, I'm talking about. So let's look at how faith is illustrated in four different ways, in four different illustrations in these verses. It's, it's a beautiful way in which James does this. He's brilliant. Obviously, he, God used him in his mind as well as the influence of the Holy Spirit because these are inspired words. But as he does this, he gives us four illustrations that vitally show us that faith is connected to real living and obedience and works. The four things that we see in this, two of them are negative, in which you see it isn't really faith and it's worthless. And two are positive, 
that was real. That was true faith. Two of them that show faith towards God in relation to God. They're Godward in their, in their focus. And two that are to God, but they're related to man in caring for others and loving their neighbor. Let's look at the four illustrations he shows us in this passage. First, the first one. So faith, he wants to say faith works if it's really faith. And I want, to, I want you to be tested here. I want you to be tested through these illustrations. Four illustrations to reinforce the truth that faith without works is dead. Fake, it's fake and it's not real. Number one, he shows us and says, learn from the armchair philanthropist. You know, a philanthropist, someone who has a lot of money or has possessions and he's going to use that for philanthropy, for giving, for helping, doing good for others, helping the poor, helping the needy, taking care of the orphan, the widow that we saw in chapter one. He's going to say, let's, let's learn from the armchair philanthropist, the one that just sits still and doesn't do anything. I guess we could call him the couch potato Christian. Look at verses 15 and 16 with me. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? James is concerned about this subject. He's been already on this before in, chapter, in the first part of this when he says show no partiality. He's concerned, are you caring for the poor man that walks into your doors? Are you caring for the orphan and widow at the end of chapter one? There's definitely a need in this church and he's saying, but he says here, what good is it if you say you have faith, if people are in your life and they barely have provision, they don't have provision to make it day to day. They, this, this, this idea is their clothing is so torn that they're probably shivering. They're not in a good place. They have need. And all he gives this picture of if you say to them, if you are the kind of person that says, gives them a spiritual blessing, God bless you. Go in peace. May you be rich and filled. I will pray for you. And, and you go your way and you do nothing. He says, what good is that? And the implied answer for all of us listening would go, it's not good at all. And he says, that's a kind of faith that some people have in their lives. The faith that leads them to that kind of non-works. He says, it's dead faith. They say they have compassion. The Christian should always say, I'm want, I, am, I am to love my neighbor as myself, but to give a blessing, to pray for somebody, to say you're concerned and do nothing about it, you have no compassion at all. This is and must be convicting to us. I pray it will be. How often do we sit idly and watch and say we love our neighbor as ourselves and do nothing? We can take this both at the literal level of the example of saying there are people or rent needs or some financial needs or grocery needs, though for a lot of us that's not the primarily need that you'll see in their life, but they have great need in their life 
And the greatest need they have is Jesus Christ. Have you sat idly? Have we sat idly? And said, I bless you. And have done nothing about it. Friends, in a church, we could sit here and maybe the, the, most of the people, I'm not aware of any needs right now where you would say you're in the description of verse 15 and 16, but I'm sure there are people in this church, in this congregation, that are, are dealing with loneliness. They're dealing with the needs, not with poor clothing or no food, but their loneliness, and they need a friend, and they need an invitation into your life. Don't just say you'll pray for them. Invite them into your life, into your home. Take them out. Talk with them. Care about them. Love them. Don't say you're a Christian if you have no concern for your brother and sister is what James would want us to say. If you really have faith, it's not going to be like this, non-faith without works. It is useless, James would say. Oh, I pray that we would Say that even in our own home, towards our spouse, our children, our neighbor, our fellow church member, whoever it is, true faith leads us to this kind of action and love. If you say you have faith, but you don't open your eyes to the needy and care and care for them, there's a reality that James would want to say very bluntly, you can't say you're a Christian. And he's not talking about perfection, but real love. What in our lives, if we... What is the direction of your hearts? All of us can say, oh man, I have dropped the ball. I missed an opportunity. I am guilty. We all. But is the general direction of your life, I really just have no care for anybody in my life. I really don't have that kind of life. God, forgive me. As you look at your heart, take that to God. Confess that. If there is no desire, James would say, if there is no attitude of moving towards that, your faith is dead. And if your life is characterized by no faith... No obedience in this way, he's going to say, is your faith worth anything? Faith without works, he says in 17, is dead. Let's look at the next illustration, verse 19. I guess we could learn from the demon-like theologian. this book. He maybe knows the Apostles' Creed. He knows good doctrine. And he could even maybe even defend it, but he surely would say he knows it and he agrees that it's right. He believes it. Look at 19. You believe that God is one. Now, I think James is sarcastic here. You do well. He's just say, you think, you say that God is one? And really, he's probably referring to the creed or from the Shema in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Oh, that is essential. I don't want to... He was not being sarcastic about that. All of us should know God's word. God is one, and we are to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. There is only one God, and we should worship him. And he's saying, you say that you believe this. You have good right thoughts about God. And he says, you do well. The demons can believe that. And they do, and they shudder. His point here is for you to go, okay, it may be really good for me to have theology, but that is not enough. That is not a test. There are, you might say, 
I believe that Jesus died on the cross. I believe he rose from the dead. I believe that Jesus is fully God and he is fully man. He was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life. He rose, he, he went bodily into heaven. He's there right now. He'll come back again. He will return. He is going to judge all things. There's a real heaven and there's a real hell. He was gonna do all these things and the reality is demons believe all those things. They're not saved. James is going to say, do you really have faith? you really want to be just like that? I love, sorry to admit this, you know this, I love the Green Bay Packers. I know a lot about them, way too much about them. I know their rosters from the 80s and the 90s. I know their rosters from the last two decades. I have a ton of knowledge and it's worthless knowledge. It's never helped me get to a game. I, I've, I've never been able to like get into a Packer game, play a game, be on the sidelines, be part of the team because I had any of that knowledge. It was useless knowledge. It's, oh, it's, it's a fun hobby and it's enjoyable with my family and friends and all of that. But the reality of that knowledge in itself is useless. And he wants us to know, and so can just a bunch of knowledge without something vital. Believe that God is one and they shudder. You are to believe God is one and love him with all your hearts. That is what true heartfelt faith, that's what true faith is. The knowledge about God is meant to lead you to a heartfelt trust and loyalty and love to God. You can say that you believe God that, he's sin, that you're a sinner and you can believe that Jesus was real and, he, and you should do all those things and you must believe these things, but it is not enough. Friend, demons know the scriptures and they know that God is one and they have seen the works of Jesus and they're not saved. There is something way more to faith than just mentally agreeing in your head includes so much more. That's why they say there's such a difference between here and here, at least metaphorically. What's in your mind and what goes down to your heart, a heartfelt trust. And he's going to say in verse 20, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So let me teach you with two more illustrations, he says. Verse 21, he would have us learn from the Hold nothing back, Abraham. Oh, Abraham is a beautiful example. Look at verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, that faith was active along with his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called the friends of God. If you want to study this Subject, especially Abraham and his faith, I refer you to Romans 4 and Hebrews 11. But friends, he wants us to really see here that look at Abraham and now he says, here is a positive example. You want to know what real faith is? Abraham was an idol-worshiping pagan when God appeared to him and made promises to bless him. And because he believed God, Genesis 15, 16, 15, 6 says, it was counted to him as righteousness. 
He was made right, declared righteous because of his faith in God's promises. He believed them. And that belief or faith was proven so vividly over the next 40 years of his life. And from really when God first appeared to him in Genesis 12 and then all the way to Genesis 22 when he goes and he offers his son Isaac, of which he refers to in this story, Genesis 22, probably 40 years has passed and he has grown to truly know and believe and grow in loyalty and faith to this God give you a son and this son is going to be in the heir of the whole world and he is and there's going to be nations and and a people that's going to come from his offspring and it's going to be Isaac and finally through a miraculous birth because they were way too old to have children it was a miracle from God God gave him Isaac now as a young probably young teenager God his son Isaac God says take your only son and go offer him up on a mountain that I tell you, and you're going to offer him up as a burnt offering. You're going to slaughter him, and you're going to offer him up as a sacrifice to me. So Abraham goes with his servants. He comes to the foot of the hill in Genesis 22, verse 5, and he says to his servants, wait here. Me and my son are going to go up into the mountain, and we're going to offer a sacrifice, and we're going to return again. He said, we're going to return again. Was he planning to disobey God at the last moment? No. What's he thinking? You see, he believed God by now. He believed God in practice. He believed God with loyalty and obedience. He has faith in the wisdom and the right of the saving faith that produces the work of obedience. He believed in the goodness and the faithfulness of God who made promises Hebrews 11 tells us what Abraham was thinking as he goes up that mountain. And we learn a lot about the nature of saving faith that produces this kind of obedience. Because in Hebrews eleven seventeen, it says that Abraham, when he was tested, that's what God was doing. He offered up Isaac, having received the promise. Because remember, it said, through Isaac, everything was going to come. And it says this in verse 19 of Hebrews 11. It's worth marking. Hebrews eleven nineteen. This is the kind of faith that James wants us to have. It is the kind of faith we need to grow in. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is what Abraham's thinking. God tells him to go and offer his son as a test. Do you really love me? Do you really trust me? He goes, maybe as a gulp, and he goes, and he's wondering, God, what are you going to do? And maybe he says he considered. God promised me that through Isaac, I will have an inheritance, and many a great nation will come from Isaac. Isaac, not another son, Isaac. Now, God told me to... Kill Isaac in a sacrifice. The only logical conclusion is he's going to raise him from the dead. I don't, I don't know. He, he keeps his word, and he, I'm going to do it. And he goes, and he's about to kill his son. says to him, and Genesis 22, 12, stop. Now I know, because you did not withhold your son your only son. You see, that is faith. It is a faith that holds nothing back, but because you're trusting God so much 
that you hold nothing back from him. It is the type of faith when Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you must deny yourself and follow me. It will cost you everything. It might cost you your life and your family and everything, but I am worth it. Hold nothing back and trust me. If you were to read Hebrews 11, you'd read about Moses acted in faith. You act, Noah acts in faith and builds an ark. God, hold him, God told him to do it. And would he have been saved if Noah did not build an ark? The answer is absolutely not. Was he saved by works? He was not by faith, but a faith that trusted God, so much so that he would obey him and build an ark. It, it was a faith that had works. James is saying, oh, learn from Abraham. Learn that the type of faith that you're called to is the type that views God as so faithful and real in his promises that you can obey him, you can care for others. You can, when I call you to obey, you can trust me. Hold nothing back. That's, that's the faith. Last illustration. Look at verse 25. James 20, 2.25, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. We could ponder there the grace of God. He loves to save sinners. Rahab the prostitute, he was justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way. Now, James is not saying, in reality, they were justified on the merits of their works. No, they were justified and by God, and their works, their actions, demonstrate that their faith was real and genuine and was not useless. It was alive. It was saving. And we could go to that story in Joshua 2, in Joshua 2, we have the story of Rahab who was from Jericho and she, she was a, a prostitute woman who was there and these two spies of Israel, because God was about to take the city of Jericho, they were checking out the land to see if it's ready and they go into that city and they're gonna be caught and they flee to her and she receives them into her house, a prostitute's house, and she hides them and when the authorities are seeking them out, she lies about them and says, no, they're, they're not here. They went out this other way. And she kept them in and then safely delivered them out so that they could be rescued. And God viewed that as an act of her saying, I'm going to throw my whole lot into the God of Israel. We are perishing, but the answer is in the God of Israel. All the nations are melting at the God of Israel. I need the God of Israel, the God of these spies. I don't understand a whole lot of them, but I need that God. I throw my lot in with him, even to the point where if they catch me hiding and embedding these spies, I'll be probably killed. That's the faith. And he's saying, and, and you see, it was a risky faith. It was a risky, compassionate, care for others type of faith. I think James brings this illustration in part for us to say, we are to have risky, compassionate faith, just like she did. And it's gonna ha your faith will be tested because you might be persecuted and you have to stick your neck out on a limb to care for others who are in need. Because you see, faith works. Faith says, I'm all in with God because I trust him. I will hold nothing back. It's not just I have some good statements I believe about God and it's not enough to say blessings upon another person. 
This is the faith that has life. Let me ask you, what kind of faith do you have? Parents, if your children were asked about you, tell me about your mom and dad. What kind of faith do they have? Really? Is it real? Is it lived out? Siblings, if your brother was asked about you, your sister was asked to you about, what's your, faith, what's your brother's faith like? What's your sister's faith like? What if, what if you were one of your coworkers or your classmates, someone you play a game online with, if they were questioned about, hey, through just your conversations, your life, your interactions with him or her, does this person have faith like James talks about faith? I wonder what would be said. I have one more important question, really important question. Do you know how great Jesus is? You see, Abraham, Rahab, and others in the Bible, in the Old Testament especially, they were not asked, will you have faith in him? That was implied. Instead, God revealed himself through either message or person. And when they saw his greatness, his goodness, his holiness, his Jesus Christ walking on the pathway, they learned his promises. They believed in him. In all this talk about faith, we need to see that we can actually be deceived. What we say is not as important as what we is seen coming from our lives as evidence of our faith. And what is of supreme importance is not knowing how good our faith is in reality. It is the object of our faith. Friends, members of Faith Church, visitors, look away from faith this morning. As much as I've talked to you about illustrated faith, this kind of faith, that kind of faith, Good faith, bad faith. Right now, in your mind's heart, look away from faith and to the object of your faith, which is Jesus Christ. Don't trust in the power of your strong or weak faith. Or whether it's saving or not, don't trust in that faith. Trust in Jesus. Faith looks away from yourself and sees someone who is great and able to save a weak-faithed person like you or like me. Do you see Jesus on the cross dying for you? Do you see Jesus sinners? Do you see Jesus as the one who is big enough to come and deal with your sexual addiction or your literal your chemical addiction or your bitterness or your pride or your anger or your fear or your hatred? Do you see Jesus as enough? He is. He loves to come and rescue you. He loves to forgive. He will forgive you and give grace to you. Jesus Christ, as James said in chapter 2, verse 1, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the, he is the Lord of glory. He came to seek those who are lost, to those who are armchair Christians. For those who have demon-like faith, he came to rescue and bring them into a hold nothing back, I'm all in because he is so good. I can't help myself. He is my savior. Jesus welcomes you. Will you have you come to him? Once again, whether you've been saved for 40 years, 
70 years or just a few months or you haven't yet, look to him again today. Are you saved? There is a savior who opens wide his arms and welcomes us. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help me to internalize and obey and to respond to this. God, grow my faith. I believe, help my unbelief. I pray that you take and work in each member of this church, each teenager, each child, each attender or visitor, and you would cause us to examine the where our faith is and what kind of faith it is. And after that, look, more importantly, look to you. Reveal yourself to us, O Father, through your Son, Jesus. O Christ, be glorified in, in us by granting us the grace to believe you like we ought. Forgive us for our lack of faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond by singing this glorious expression of a faith in Christ Jesus.